We are in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and we're going to get through to chapter 21, verse 8 this morning. What are you guys doing back here? Is it snowing there? Is that why? Well, it's raining here, so all the time. Welcome back. Brief visit. Welcome not back to Real Madrid supporters. It's okay. I cried enough last night. I should be okay today. And the crying was preparation for today's sermon. To want to be in heaven. Will there be no more crying? So we're going to read from verse 11, chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord, please bless your word now that we may believe it and that we may respond appropriately to it, and that we may rejoice that our response is a response that leads to life. Amen. Well, lately I've been dealing with, uh, in my little time of uh, hobbies, coaching soccer, They uh, it's that time of year where the Vancouver Whitecaps have their tryouts for uh, young kids. It's, uh, they have under 15, under 17, 19, and so on, and uh, now they have under 14. And I coach a team, and we uh, send our players, our top players, to the Whitecaps tryouts. Uh, and uh, actually, Matthew and Josh both went for their respective ages, and uh, 
about 80 kids gets narrowed down to 40, gets narrowed down to, in Josh's case, 10, and then they take maybe one or two from the province because they look all over Canada. So the chances are uh, minuscule, but uh, what's been amazing to me to see is the absolute stress and pandemonium that breaks out among parents. What email you're going to receive? Congratulations, you've made it to the next round. Sorry, uh, thank you, we wish you well, you've done well, blah, blah, blah. And you, you get these responses. You either get a positive email or a negative email. And it's stressful. I didn't even know on Friday they were coming out, but there were parents who knew, and they said they spent the whole day waiting for this email to come in. Now, you can imagine those types of scenarios where you're wanting to find out which group you're in and the stress that brings. And it is sad, is it not, that people would be so concerned about something so trivial in the big scheme of things and yet pay no attention to the two books that matter concerning every human's destiny. Eternal destiny. Imagine the concern people have for trivial things being replaced by their concern for eternal, lasting things. And that's the problem of humanity. We are crazy. We concern ourselves about the wrong things. We get distracted by temporary passing things. And we do not consider what God has to say. And you will see that there is an exhortation in the section that we've read where these words are trustworthy and true. And if you believe these words, it's going to change the way you live and think. It can't help but do that. So, as John opens up, he speaks of a great white throne, a, a throne of victory, of, a throne of purity, a throne of regal authority where the Lord of glory is seated in all of his glory. And the response to this throne is quite startling because the earth and the sky fled away. They are trying to escape the trauma of some event that is happening. They are not being drawn to the throne in terms of worship and love and obedience, but there's a terror that overcomes the cosmic universe, creation, world in which they want nothing to do with this throne. And the question is, why do they want nothing to do with this throne? Not only because of who is seated on it, but because of what he is about to do as one who is seated on the throne. So, just as Adam hid from the presence of the Lord after he had sinned, so the world will want to hide from the presence of Christ because they have sinned. And you see in verse 12, the dead, there's a sort of resurrection now that takes place of every human being who has ever lived. I saw the dead, great and small, those who were rich, those who were powerful, those who were poor, those who are considered nobodies in the world, all are standing before the throne and books were opened. This is like a courtroom scene. You can go back to Daniel chapter 7 and see this idea, but there's a courtroom scene and books are opened and these books contain the destiny of every single person who is standing now before this throne. You will either go to be with Christ in glory or you will find yourself in the lake of fire. 
These books will be opened. You will get your email, so to speak. And it will concern your everlasting destiny. Now notice when this book is opened, there is another book. And it is called the book of life. And if you were to remove that other book, the book of life, it would mean one thing, that every single person who stands before the throne is going to be judged purely and exclusively on all that they have or have not done in themselves in this world. But thankfully, praise God, there is a book of life, just as there is a book that records the deeds of those who are wicked. Notice, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. What they had done. This is found in the Psalms, it's found in Proverbs, it's found in Christ in Matthew chapter 16, for example. He says, the Son of Man will do what? He will come with angels in the glory of His Father and He will repay each person according to what He has done. He could not be more clear about this. He speaks about it in Matthew chapter 25 as well. Or Romans chapter 2 verse 6, Paul says, He will render each person according to his works. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaking after the resurrection in the new covenant, nevertheless says, We must all appear before the judgment seats of Christ. Just like John says, so Paul says the same thing. That each one may receive his due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So these people are gathering before the throne and they are being judged according to what they have done. And the question we have to ask is, what have people done? What have people in this world done? Maybe we can say they have lied and they have gotten away with it. Maybe many of their lies have not been uncovered. Maybe they have committed adultery and they have gotten away with it in the eyes of man. Maybe they've cheated on their taxes and they have gotten away with it in the eyes of the government. Maybe they have slammed others and made other idols into a god and they have gotten away with it. Maybe they've harmed other people and spoken ill of other people and not been kind towards people, and they have gotten away with it. Maybe they have fornicated, and they have gotten away with it. Maybe they have looked at explicit images that they ought not to look at, and they have gotten away with it in the eyes of the world. Maybe they've defrauded other people and gotten away with it. Maybe they have not considered others more significant than themselves, or not shown honor to those to whom honor is due, and they have gotten away with it. And maybe they have set one standard for themselves, and a much different standard for others, and they have gotten away with it. But what we are told here is nobody will ever actually get away with anything. Because this judgment shows that God has a book. And in that book is every single deed that has ever been done or every single deed that should have been done but was not done. Sins of commission, sins of omission. And God has a book. 
And what you will find is that if you cover your sin in this world, God will uncover it at the judgment. And if you uncover your sin in this world through faith and repentance, God will cover it at the judgment. Do you see how simple life is? It's not complex. You're going to see as we go through the passage. It's not terribly difficult. Own it. Repent. God covers it freely, without money, without cost. Hide it so that you can have the veneer of self-righteousness, so that you can maintain your pretended dignity in this world. God will show you no dignity when He uncovers everything. And you see, when God comes to judge, He's got certain characteristics that are not really true of judges in this world. Significantly, God has a lot of time. We aren't told how long the judgment will take place, but if God wants to spend a hundred years just with one of you, if you have not put your faith in Christ, He could take a hundred years. And a hundred years is like a day, and a day is like a hundred years. And a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God has time. Those of you paying attention to the Johnny Depp trial, come on, I know some of you are. They only have a limited amount of time to bring their case forth. And then they run out of time and they have to be careful with the hours they've been allotted to bring forth their case. God doesn't have that problem. There's no, the hour is up. I remember defending my dissertation at Leiden University and I had 45 minutes that I had to get through and then someone comes in and strikes the bell, ora est. The hour is finished. It's done. But with God, He can keep you sitting there for years and decades if He needs to. He has no limitation on His time. He also has no limitation on His knowledge. Not every judge knows every fact. God knows every fact. He knows every thought. He knows every non-thought. He knows every conceivable thought. He knows what thoughts you might want to have thought but did not think. He's God. He knows what you failed to do that you should have done. He is God. He knows and He has time and He has integrity because He is holy. So when He judges your thoughts, He is not biased. He is not going to excuse it. He's not going to make excuses for all of your sins as we do. He sees your sin in a way that nobody else can because He has integrity. He has holiness. And He also has ability. He is powerful. He is able to execute a judgment. We may look at things and pass a judgment, but that doesn't mean we can execute a judgment because we lack the power or the authority to do so. God does not lack power. He does not lack authority. He does not lack integrity. He does not lack knowledge. And He certainly does not lack time. And you can imagine, if you will, people all around the world standing gathered before the throne. And there may even be spouses beside each other whose actions condemn the other person. There may be children standing with their parents whose actions condemn their parents and whose parents' actions condemn their children. 
And you can go on and on because it is not just about individuals, but it is about peoples and nations and tribes. And God will judge. And you see, verse 15 gives us some hope because up until that point, it looks pretty bleak. But if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, which is to say positively, if your name is found in the book of life, you are not thrown. You are safe. So the question will be, who are those that are written in the Lamb's book of life? And how can you know that? And what is in store for them? And you see in chapter 21, we get to the new heaven and the new earth. Because the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And the sea was no more. And the sea was no more is to illustrate why the first heaven and the first earth had to pass away. Because the sea is not to say that in heaven there's going to be no water, that it's just going to be dry land. It's not saying that at all. In the book of Revelation, the sea stands for chaos. It stands for danger. It stands for wickedness. So when the sea is no more, it means there's sin no more. There will be no more sea. There will be no more chaos. There will only be stability. And that is why the first heaven and the first earth has to pass away. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. I call it replacement theology. Uh, Some of you will have no idea why that's funny. Maybe one person. Not even AJ, I guess. But this is what God is doing. He's making all things new. And in this newness, in this cosmic renewal, he sees a holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the elements and the glories of this will be repeated later in more detail and we'll get there. So I'm not going to dwell on it so much. But I am going to dwell on verse 3 because verse 3 is really a summary statement of everything that is ultimately important in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, anything that is of ultimate importance flows out of this reality. He hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God dwells with man. Emmanuel, God with us, God dwells with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. In Ezekiel, we're told that my dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Leviticus, and I will walk among you and I will be my, your God and you will be my people. Or to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. Or Adam, you are my son. I will be my, your God and I will dwell with you. This is what God does. He dwells with his people. So everything you want to say about the Bible, unless you get to the point where you can say God desires to dwell with His people, you have not got to the whole purpose of why God created man and why God has redeemed man and why God has prepared a new heavens and a new earth for man. He wants to dwell with them. And the way in which He dwells with them is especially through Jesus Christ, the God-man who dwells in the midst of His people. Now, notice the blessing. He will wipe 
away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I think it's fair to say that some of us can appreciate verse 4 more than others. If you are a little bit younger, let's say a few months old, your crying is relatively insignificant most of the time, let's say. Generally as a rule. You cry because you're hungry or you cry because there's an irritation. Then you get a little bit older and someone takes your cookie and you cry. Now that may go up to 18 or even 41, I don't know. But the point is, people, as they get older, when they cry, the older they get, it seems as though the significance of those tears is more profound. So when a a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old man cries compared to when he was four months old, it's usually over things far more significant, usually. And that's why I say some people will be able to appreciate this verse more than others. Because some people know what real tears are. Some people know what real pain is. Some people know what real sorrow is. Some people know that even if there weren't actual tears coming down, inside they were ripped apart and they don't ever want anyone else to experience what they've experienced because of the horrors of it. It's like that awful, awful shooting that took place recently. And what was so shocking to me is how quick people were on social media to talk about things that really wasn't the time. Gun control this and that. I couldn't even listen. My wife wanted to talk to me about some of that. I said, I can't even listen to this right now. I can't even bring myself to think about what madness is in man's hearts. And you see how one of the husbands of the shot teacher actually died of a heart attack. He died of a heart attack because the stress must have got to him so much and the sadness and the grief that he actually died because of it. And you can multiply this a million times around the world. People who've experienced real grief. And so you read, there will be no more tears, no more mourning. God will end it. You will be forever protected from any internal grief and any external trauma. Because the former things, the ugly things, the messy things, the traumatic things, the heartbreaking things have passed away. And so he who was seated on the throne in verse 5 said, Behold, I am making all things new. And that's really, again, as I said, the essence of the Bible is God dwelling with His people and calling them His people and His people calling the true God their God. But really, if you think about the Bible, it's not just a linear progression from Genesis to Revelation and history unfolding. It's actually God seeing what He created, saying it was very good, seeing that after sin entered the world, things were very bad, but God rescuing us by bringing us back to what He always intended. So when you get to Revelation, it starts to look like Genesis. Because God wants to dwell with His people just as He dwelt with Adam. 
I call it back to the future. As you go back to Genesis, you see the future. You see what God intended. And so he says, it is done. Verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's the only time besides chapter 1, verse 8, where God speaks directly. I am the beginning and the end. And he's not saying that he has a birth and a death, as you might understand someone like a human to have a beginning and the end. He's basically saying, I am the eternal beginning of all things, and I am the eternal end of all things. And everything that happens in between those eternities is because of me. That I am the Lord of eternity. I am the beginning and the end. I can create a new heavens and a new earth that goes on and on and on forever and ever because I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then you get this glorious insight into what it means to be in the book of life. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Without payment. And I'll come back to this. But notice who he's speaking of. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. There's an elaboration on the principle he's speaking about when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Really what he's driving at is, I will be a father to my children. Just as Adam was a son of God, just as David was a son of God, just as Solomon received the promise, I will be to him a father and he will be my son. So all of you are children of God. I will be his God and he will be my son. And these people who are sons of the father are contrasted in verse 8 with the cowardly with the faithless, the detestable. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there are those who are thirsty and desire to drink. There are those who overcome. There are those in the book of life. But then there are those who are in the book of deeds. And their deeds are explained in part here. And just by way of a few points of application, I just want to say that the understanding of heaven in the modern mind is incredibly warped. My dad has a very odd friend, probably many, as I've explained in past sermons. This one friend, he goes to funerals. He actually visits funerals. He's not invited. He doesn't know the person. He just thinks it's a good idea to go and see these funerals. You know, see what the person died of, what they got up to, all these sorts of things. So he'll say to my dad, I was at the funeral of this person the other week and goes on about what happened at the funeral. Now, I'm pretty sure that at many of these funerals, he's heard the following. To some extent. A, the person who died was a saint even if they weren't a Christian. And B, that saint is now smiling down upon us. You've got to have been to, I've been to many funerals, invited of course. And I've heard these very things. And I'd like to think about the person who is Smiling down upon the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, liars. 
Who smiles down on that? Not a saint. So if you're smiling down upon what humanity has become outside of Christ, it probably reveals that you were lied about at your funeral. And that's because nobody wants to actually believe that anyone really is bad. Nobody wants to believe even the bad people were actually bad. Because once you acknowledge that somebody was in fact not a saint and in fact godless and deserving of judgment, you then have to worry about maybe you also are going to be judged. So when everybody smiles at the person who's smiling down on them, it is a collective sigh of relief that there is no judge. There is no judgment. That we're all going to be okay. That's why you're not going to go to a funeral. And they say, he's smiling down upon us. He left his wife and children. He murdered someone, but he's smiling down on us. So you're not going to hear anyone jump up and say, this is a fraud. The man's a liar. Because everyone sitting there wants to believe that it doesn't really matter how we live. It's all going to be okay one day. It's a failure to see the world as God sees the world. And it's a temptation to want to see the world as the world sees the world. And the only really bad people now in the world are actually Christians. But then secondly, I want you to understand something else, that as you read this, you see a new heaven and a new earth, and you see these promises that God is going to be your God, and you're going to be His child, and you're going to be there forever and ever. Maybe you've thought, as I've thought about myself, why is it that I can't really appreciate as I ought to appreciate these promises? Why don't they affect me the way they should affect me? Why am I not enraptured in the love of God the way I think I ought to be, given everything that God says about who I am and where I'm going? That you hear about these things, but you don't feel sometimes moved by these things. And you start to go, why is that? At least I felt a little bit that way as I was reading this this week. Thinking, why am I not more moved by the love of God? And it occurred to me, as my kids were drinking a Slurpee yesterday. You can't drink a Slurpee with a little straw, can you? It leads to all sorts of pain and agony. You need a big straw. And then you can take far more of the Slurpee in rather than just syrup and then ice is left at the bottom. And you don't have the capacity with the small straw to enjoy all of it. It's like those other straws. And this is where I'm sure I'll get a complaint. But those cardboard straws. Listen, people, I love the turtles. I love them. They've never done anything to me, the turtles. But when that cardboard straw starts to get soggy and start to bend and then you try to use it to suck out whatever drink you've got and it just turns into a traumatic experience because it won't come through the straw. And I realize you are all that straw. That there's nothing wrong with the love of God. There's nothing wrong with the infinite love of God. The problem is you don't have the capacity 
because of the constitution and weakness of your being to actually receive in full the love of God. It's not that God's love is lacking. It's that sin in us makes us unable to actually rejoice the way we should rejoice. Because we are that straw. You know, like a child or an adult who's been absolutely starved. They've been starved for months that they're barely alive. Imagine taking such a person and all of a sudden you, you're able to get them and you, you take them to a buffet and you say, oh, we're going to be here all night. This is going to be great. I don't care. I'm sure you're going to have about seven plates of food. Isn't this wonderful? And they sit there and they're basically nibbling at what little their body can receive. That's what Christians are like in this world. We are nibbling at this buffet of promises because we are so emaciated by what sin has done to us that the problem is not God's love. The problem is not God's promises. The problem is like the straw or like the emaciated child, we simply can't receive it. And if for some reason God were to just reveal His glory and love to us, we'd all die. What happened to Paul when he saw the risen Christ? He didn't say, this is just wonderful. I'm so glad I've, I've come to see the, the way of the truth. He fell down as though dead. He was blinded. John falls down as though dead. Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration goes crazy. What's the point of me saying this? The point is, I don't want you to feel too bad that you don't feel so in the love of God at times in your life because there is a weakness of your constitution where you're going to read things like this and you're going to wish that you could believe them more and you're going to wish that you could receive them more. But we are but dust and ashes. We are but flesh. And there will come a day when that straw will no longer exist, but it will just be a free-flowing fountain into our souls and into our bodies and it will be as though we weren't ever even human when we were on this earth. Because we will know what it was like to be truly made in the image of God. But then one final question. How do you know your name is written in this book of life? If everything's about the books and whether you are going to be able to stand at the final judgment or be cast into the lake of fire where burning sulfur, how do you know your name is in the book of life? And you could say, well, you know, the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells you so. But what does the Bible actually tell you? You can't get away that easily. What does the Bible tell you? And actually, the book of Revelation tells you. The book of Revelation tells you who's in the book of life. It's those who don't worship the beast. It's those who worship God. It's those who persevere to the end. It's those who come as we see in verse 6, thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. It's those who actually come and say, I have nothing that I can offer. I can't pay, and yet I want it all. What can I do? And you can ask God, and He will give. I wonder if any of you are fortunate enough like I was to be baptized as a baby. I'm going to be honest, I don't remember a whole lot that went on. I'm told that I punched the guy, being the Baptist that I was, who was trying to baptize me. Small detail. 
So I don't remember my baptism. But you know what else I don't remember when I was born? I don't remember my parents naming me. I just grew up and I was Mark. And I'm still Mark. I'm going to die Mark. And I don't remember my baptism. I don't remember my name. All I know is that I live as Mark. And I live as one baptized. And I live as one who believes that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Not just yesterday, not just today, but tomorrow. You see, all that actually matters is that each day you believe that. That each day you embrace your new name, not just your given name. Your name, whereby you are a child of God. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son. And that you come and you relinquish everything that you've done because you have to relinquish everything that you've done and ask that your name is not in the book of deeds where you're going to be judged by a God who knows all and sees all, but your name is in a book of life where the actual book records not your deeds, but the deeds of one whose deeds were perfect, without blemish, to the uttermost. And your name is simply there. Think about the wicked things you've done and probably still will do. And think about the fact that God is so merciful, He is prepared to wipe it all out and simply place your name in a book that Christ Himself has written by His work and by His life and by His death and by His resurrection. And you simply just have to believe it. And there you have the glory of redemption and the glory of the one who belongs on that throne. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that we will confess each day who we are. We are children of God who believe that Jesus gives to the thirsty water to drink without money, without cost. And that we would freely receive this gift each day so that we may be in the book of life the book of eternal life, the book of eternal joyful life, the book of eternal joyful worshiping life forever and ever. Amen.